trying to usher in Christmas for you. Is it working okay? Uh, hopefully it is. Yep, yeah, I can uh, tell by the, the little sea of red sweaters. Y'all are trying to get into it. And Cactus and Venue and Chapel, I'm sure it might be similar over there. You know, Scottsdale Bible is not, uh, being a Bible church slash community church, we're not the most traditional church, but there are some traditions that uh, I like. I wasn't raised in church. I became a Christian about 38 years ago, and I, I started going to church then, and there were some traditions that I immediately clung on to that I just thought were, were really meaningful and respectful. One of them is that Christians of old would stand when we would read the gospel. You guys remember that? And I like that one. So would you stand right now, even before I pray, Cactus Venue Chapel, please all stand with me. And I'm going to read the scripture for today. We're continuing in our series, Finding Joy in Christmas. In fact, we're capping it off today, uh, looking at the Magi. So it's found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Just uh, follow along in your mind as I read this for you. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. While you're staying standing, we're standing, would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, it's, it's amazing to read your words, stories that have survived 2,000 years and will survive until your son comes back. And God, I pray that as we talk about this one today, that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see. May we uh, be biblical in our understanding here today. And Lord, may you even surprise us with joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. Well, you can be seated. Well, if I don't miss my guess, just about everybody and their brother has heard of the Magi. About everybody and their brother have heard of the Magi. You might not have known them as that. You might know them as the three wise men or the three kings. They appear in nativity scenes right along the shepherds and the animals. They are a part of church recreations of the birth of Jesus, like the one that we did during Winter Wonder. They appear on Christmas cards that you all got this season. We can all picture them. 
Three ornately dressed men approaching the baby Jesus, each with a gift, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they are portrayed as dignities bowing before the baby king. The three wise men, the three king, the three magi, whatever that means, just about everybody and their brother have heard of them, and yet most people, I'm going to submit to you today, do not know the real story. Because you see, since their sole appearance 2,000 years ago, shortly after the birth of Jesus, there have been added a lot of folklore to these already mysterious visitors of Jesus. And so what I want to do today is to try to set the record straight. So let's begin by all getting on the same page, even before we go to our main point, with some long-needed fast facts concerning the Magi. I'm going to give you all four up front here right now, and then we'll walk through each one. Uh, Here's the four fast facts that we're pretty certain about the Magi. First, they are Magi. We'll see what that means in a minute. Second, they came as a plurality. Three, they came from very far away. And four, they had a private audience with Jesus. And so let's take each one of these separately. If you're taking notes, don't worry. We'll get back to this list. First is that they are Magi. They are Magi. You know, in the most literal translation of the Bible, probably the New American Standard Bible, it says this in Matthew 2, verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Magi from the east. The reason that's important in that translation is that many other translations, even some that we're fond of, interpret that as wise men. That's what it would say in your translation. I'm here to debunk that today. Because here's the deal. When Matthew calls them magi here in the New American Standard Bible translation, this is almost a tit-for-tat transliteration from the Greek to the English. In other words, if you were to read a Greek Bible, as I do, Matthew is using a a word back then in the Greek, the Greek word magoi, which is plural for magus, and, and we just shorten it to magi in the New American Standard Bible here. And so the question becomes, when I say they are magi, and I leave it at that, we should ask, what is a magi? What is a magos in the first century? And a magos was somebody who practiced astrology dream interpretation, and the magical arts. In fact, in the Greek, these magi performed what is called in the Greek magikos, where we get our English word magic from. They were part of what ancient world experts call pagan occult arts. So they were anything but Jewish, and what you need to see as well, because this will be important for where we're going today, they were anything but biblical. In fact, they're only mentioned two other times in the Bible. The first spot in Acts chapter 13 to describe a false prophet named Elimus the Magician. That's literally his name, Elimus the Magician. And he opposed the gospel of Paul and Barnabas. And then we see the Magi mentioned a second time in Daniel chapter 2 when it talks about the advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who ransacked Israel and took them into captivity. The Magi are listed as some of his advisors recruited to help him him interpret dreams. And this is why, by the way, that some people call them wise men. 
because they were included back then, some of them, within the secular religions of that, East, of the, of that Middle Eastern context. They were sought for their wisdom because they were the wise men of their age practicing these, this occult magic. And they even were included in some royalty advisory groups. But you need to know two things. First, Matthew never mentions here that they were wise men. He never mentions that these guys were part of any royal dignity or anything like that. And even if he did, what you'd also want to know is that they weren't wise by biblical standards. The problem today is that when we call them wise men and you get that Christmas card, you kind of look at them like that old wise grandfather of yours, don't, don't you? That's not the picture at all that the Bible wants us to get here. If they were wise, they were only wise by world standards, but they, let's not even interpret that as wise. They are magi. That's what they were known as back then. And even more, and I know some of you are starting to bristle already. We'll take the edge off in a minute, but let's keep the edge on right now. Even more, nowhere does Matthew mention that they were kings. In fact, most magi... I would say it even stronger. Every instance of Magi that we have back then outside the Bible, none of them were kings. This idea that they were three kings originated actually in the late second century, well over 150 years after the time of Jesus. It was popularized by a church father named Tertullian. And Tertullian happened to see a couple of Old Testament prophecies that he thought were predicting the Messiah, and it said that kings would be visiting this Messiah. And so he surmised, based on that loose interpretation of prophecy, that these magi must have been those kings. But Matthew doesn't say this at all. And it's a stretch to read this into the story. And again, some of you are wondering, why are you doing this, Jamie? I mean, you're ruining my Christmas. We will see why in a minute, because this is very life-giving. You will see why in a minute. This is so important for us to latch onto. But what I need you to see for right now, because we're going to move on, is that these visitors were magi. Not wise men, not kings. Matthew wants to see, us as, see them as magi, secular artisans of the occults. Now, Hanging on to that, we're going to put this together in a minute. Notice a second fast fact about these magi, and this one won't be as biting, and that is just that they came as a plurality. Simply put, nowhere does it say there were three. Did you notice that? Matthew tells us simply that magi, which as I said earlier, is the plural of magos, the singular, came to visit Jesus. You're saying, where did we get this idea of three? You're not going to believe this. The reason that some people think it's three, you're going to think I'm kidding, I'm not, is because of the three different types of gifts that were brought to Jesus. So when it says gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they figured that one brought each type of gift. That's where we got three. But nowhere does it say, say that. It's like the shepherds. It says there were some that came and visited Jesus. It could have been two. It could have been ten. We don't know. That's not really important. It's not even Matthew's point. I just like debunking this. And notice for me a third fast fact. And one that, by the way, is going to be really important for our understanding of why Matthew included this visitation in his gospel. And that is that they came from very far away. They came from very far away. 
I want you to look at verse one again, and this time from a different angle, that if, if you were in the first century reading this for the first time, being in that first century culture and, and raised in that culture, you would pick up on this right away. And that is, you would read this. Now, after Jesus was born in, say the word with me, Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the arrived in Jerusalem. So what you would pick up on right away is that there's a mention here of Bethlehem in Judea and then the far east. And immediately you'd think this. You'd think Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah is going to be born. It's only five or six miles from Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of God's activity in and through Israel. I mean, you can't get closer to the presence of God than Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Now we're talking. And then it says, and visitors came from the east. And you'd go, whoa, the, the, the east? I mean, in the east is Babylon. In the east is Persia. The nations that are against Israel have ransacked Israel, that, that have religions that are false religions and know nothing of the true God. In fact, we know for a fact, look up here in this map here, that these magi were from Babylon, from Persia. So you can see it in the map here. In the green here is Israel, a little Israel. And then you got Jordan and Syria. Syria's in the news right now. Uh, but far to the east is modern-day Iraq, where Babylon was back then. And then even further is modern-day Iran, where Persia was back then. So simply see, when it says that these magi came from the east, it's saying geographically that would be far away from the epicenter of God's activity in Israel. And even more, they came from places that do not know the true God. Places, as we've seen, they're about the occult and dream interpretation and astrology and things like that. It's really important you see this. This is Matthew's way of showing that these visitors were not convinced Jews. They were secular religionists at best, and they were antagonistic pagans at worst. And we're going to see why. This is so important in just a minute here. But before we get to this, one last fast fact that many people don't know about the story, and that is that these magi had a private audience with Jesus. They had a private audience with Jesus. In other words, unlike the nativity scenes that we all see and have, these magi were not there with the shepherds and the animals and all that at the birth of Jesus. They came after most likely a few weeks after, because we learned last week that at the 48th day, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So somewhere between the time that Jesus was born and the shepherds left and the 48th day, these magi came. And the reason that's important is that I would submit to you that God wanted these magi to be alone with Jesus, a private audience with them, so that he might do something very special with them. So let's review our fast facts because we're going to take off from here. First, they are magi, astrology loving, going up to Sedona to find vortexes magi. That's who we're dealing with here. They came as a plurality. There's not just three. Maybe it was three, but nowhere does it said that. It could be two, it could be ten. They came from very far away. Again, Babylon, Persia, places far away from the activity of God. And they had a private audience with Jesus. These are the facts about the Magi. 
And they're the things that we need to know because, again, I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas here. I mean, when you think about it, we're never going to sing We Three Kings of Orient are again. And you're probably never going to look at your, your, your nativity scene again the same way. So, so why is it that this is important? Well, here's why. Matthew's trying to get something across to us that they would have gotten right away back then that would have been so paradigm shifting for them when it came to the understanding of this Jewish Messiah. And I call it in your notes the obvious. The obvious point Matthew is trying to get his audience to see that we've muddled with all of this folklore over the years. And here is the obvious point, And that is that Matthew's telling us Jesus calls to himself those who are very far away. Jesus calls to himself those who are very far away. In other words, gang, don't miss this. Matthew is trying to get us to see that though Jesus came to this world within the Jewish religion as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, he nevertheless came for everyone. He came to reach those close to him, his own people, the Jews, but also those who are far away like the Magi and any others that we are tempted to not associate with Jesus because they don't seem very close to believing in him. Please see, these Magi were the least likely group back then to be included in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King who would rescue us from our sin. But included they are. Why? Because God is trying to make a point to you and me, and that is that he calls everyone to himself, even those who are far away. In all respects, geographically, spiritually, intellectually, culturally. And, and it's rich when you start to read the story from this vantage point. You start to see things in this story which you go, whoa! I guess God means business here. Now look again at verses 1 and 2 and I'll just give you an example. We've seen verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Ready for this? For we saw his star when we were in the east and have come to worship him. You know what I find fascinating about this when you start to understand what this story is really about? Is that notice that Matthew makes a point of saying this is his star. It's Jesus's star. It was God who was calling these far away magi, these Babylonian, Persian, into astrology and magic magi, ones who were very different from any of the other players in the Christmas story, whether it be Mary or Joseph or Simeon or Anna, God is calling them to come and worship him. He's calling them to himself. And did you catch this? Even by entering into their silly little occult world, of astrology and saying, yeah, you believe in stars? Okay, I'll put one up there for you. And I want you to follow that star because it's my star. And I want you to follow it to my son. Don't tell me God doesn't enter into the world of those who are lost and don't know him because he cares about them. Right at the time when Jesus is entering into the, the world to atone for sin, he, he brings these magi to the birthplace and to add further insight and even texture into this story, what you don't want to miss, because this is really important too, is that it's Matthew 
who's telling the story. Have you ever wondered why Luke and Mark and John didn't include this story here? They would have known about it. They all shared the same story. So why did Matthew choose to be the one to say, I want to tell this story? But we know the answer. And it's because Matthew, this disciple who wrote his gospel from a Jewish perspective, at one time was very far from Judaism himself as he was a despised tax collector that everybody had written off. And so if anybody got the Magi, it would have been Matthew. And in fact, I don't want to bore you with this, but this is worth looking at. It's just a few verses. This is Matthew's biographical story in his own gospel of how he came to Jesus. This is so cool. It says, as Jesus went out on from there, he saw a man called Matthew or Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth. I mean, he was an IRS agent. Nobody liked them back then. They don't like them today. And, and, and yet even back then, they were much worse And he said to him, Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in most likely Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Matthew's whole biographical story is about how Jesus didn't come to call the church people, because they were already in. He came to call those who were very far away, like Matthew and the Magi. I'll never forget, it was almost 20 years ago, uh, the first time I preached on this passage here of Matthew's story, I was a a brand new senior pastor, very young, full of spit and wind uh, in in London, Ontario. I spent 10 years as an associate pastor and I was now ready to have, if you will, my own church. And uh, I I picked this 108-year-old Baptist church that was very needy and, and really wanted a young guy to come in and help turn things around. I didn't know what I was getting into. My very first weekend there, honestly, and I, I, I don't mean this to berate the church, I have a lot of fondness for him, but I, I remember walking in and everything just felt old. The building was old. The ministry structure was old. The choir robes are moth-eaten and old and they're still wearing them. They say, and, and the people were old. I mean, everything was old in this church. And, and as soon as we started to do worship, I thought, I know why their kids aren't going to church now. I mean, we were singing old songs and, you know, it was like a funeral and it was just, I mean, it was just really, it was just like a dirge and, and, and just, there was so much work that needed to be done, but they had heart. These people really loved the Lord. So I convinced them that one of the first things we needed to mess with was the, mu- was the music. <laughs> I, I'll never do that again, but I, I said we need to do that. And, and, and again, this is in the 90s, gang. So if you, if, you, if you were a Christian back in the 90s, all I meant was let's sing some choruses like... Shout to the Lord, all the earth. You know that one? I mean, that's not like that, that, that rock. It's not like that stuff or any of that. It's just a, a nice little chorus. And yet, you would think I denied the resurrection when I brought that chorus into the to church. But we made some headway and we started to care about the community. But, but it was going to be a long road. And, and after about four months, I thought, you know, I need to, to preach some vision to these people on, on who Jesus really wants in church. So I preached on this passage. 
And all I said that day, it wasn't a complicated sermon. All I said that day was that if Jesus was here today, he would probably not be in church tonight for our Sunday evening service. He'd be at the Rideout Tavern, which was the big bar in town. And he'd be there rubbing shoulders with tax collectors and sinners. The only problem is is that y'all would feel he's being scandalous in doing that. But that's where Jesus would be because Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners because he was calling them into his fold. That's all I said. And again, it was tough to move these people, but we were making some headway. About three weeks later, we had our uh, annual picnic. And again, I mean, I, have you ever been to a whole time church picnic? I mean, it's like walking into a time warp. I mean, I walked into Springbank Park there and they had a dunk tank and there, what's that thing where you toss the, the, the sack into a hole, you know? I mean, it's an exciting game, you know? And they're playing that and, and, and then they had this ragtime band, you know? It's just an old time church picnic, but I'm, I'm in because these are my peeps now and I'm gonna, I'm gonna shepherd them. And at one point during that picnic, I'll never forget this as the day is long, there was this guy hanging out on the corner, or the, the edge of the picnic. It was a huge park. Other people were there. He was hanging out on the edge. And he looked scary. He didn't look like a church person. He, he, he was bald, which isn't bad, but he's a young guy, shaved head, and, and very muscular, tattooed. He, he had on, on jeans and a, and a muscle shirt, and, and he had a leather jacket over his, uh, his arm. And, and he was looking at me the whole time. And I thought to myself, I mean, do we have trouble here? I mean, I know we look weird and we are weird, but, you know, leave us alone, you know. And, and he was looking at me. And, and at one point, I just started to walk over to him and he started to walk over to me. And we met about halfway and I said, hey, what's up? He goes, I've been wanting to talk to you for a few weeks now. And I said, wow, what, what, what's going on? He goes, three weeks ago, I visited your church and I didn't want to go because I haven't been to church in 20 years because I went as a kid, my mom dragged me and it was awful. I felt judged, I felt condemned and I vowed I'd never go back. But my aunt told me there was this young pastor in town who's making some waves and that I'd like him. And so she, she said, I gotta come see you. And I just didn't wanna go, but I went for her. He said, do you remember what you talked about that day? You guys say it with me, Matthew. He said, you know, when you started talking about Matthew, I immediately identified with the guy because I'm a tax collector and sinner. And I understand where Matthew's coming from. He said, but the moment you said that Jesus came for the likes of Matthew, he said, it was the first time in my life that I realized that maybe Jesus wants me. He said, at the end of the service, when you invited people to pray to receive Christ, I received Christ that day. He said, I'm now here at this church picnic to see what's the next step. I put my arm around him. I said, we gotta find another church for you, pal. And I said... This one's going to suck the life out of you. <laughs> no, I, I didn't say that at all. I, I said, Jim, let's start journeying together. His name was Jim, and he became an integral part of our church. That actually started a wave in the church of our church starting to welcome the Magi to church. Welcome those that Jesus wanted to reach. We saw God do some amazing things just over the next few years at that church. You know, Jesus predicted this would happen in Matthew 8. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is Jesus's heart, gang. You you don't want to miss this. It's why he came to not just call the likes, as I said earlier, of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna and eventually Jews like Peter and John, though he did come for them. He came for the church people. 
but he also came to call everyone. It's a universal call. Everyone, no matter how far away they might seem, if there's anything that the story of the Magi teaches us, it's this. And the reason that this is so important is because this is the one truth that I find church people tend to forget. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it's so easy once you start to go to church that you get settled in your ministry and your small group and your little prayer group and your church service you decide to go to. And now you got Christian friends and you watch Christian television and listen to Christian radio and read Christian books and Christian sermons. And before you know, everything around you is a cocoon of Christian stuff. And that's not bad necessarily, but before you know it, you have forgotten who the kingdom is really designed for, amen? For those who are far away. And that Jesus says to you, when you get saved and get into church, he doesn't say, find a comfortable seat. He says, roll up your sleeves and be a part of the team now and start to welcome the magi as they start to seek the star in front of them. And the point is, we all have people like this in our lives And here's where it gets even doubly difficult. Forget about the fact that y'all have become almost too enculturated in your church culture. Even worse then, and I know this is going to be hard to picture, you got all these Christians that are angry at the world. They watch Fox News or CNN or they read World Magazine or whatever it is they might do, and then they're just in a sour mood for the next few hours. You ever notice that? And they're mad about the traditional values that seem to be going away. And they're mad about politics and they even bring economics into it and immigration and all these things. And so here's what happens is that then you have the magi in your life. And the magi is the guy at work that makes fun of people of faith. It's your relative who thinks Jesus is a crutch. It's your neighbor who's all caught up in materialism and success but doesn't seem to be interested in spiritual things. It's even your golf buddy that you tolerate, but really isn't all that spiritual. And now they sense your anger at the world around them, which by the way, is them. And the last thing they wanna do is follow you to church. The last thing they wanna do is follow a star that God's put in front of them to Jesus. It's why my friend Jim, that story was so revolutionary because very few churches at that time in Ontario, probably even now, were really all that welcoming to the Magi. They really weren't after Matthew the tax collector. They were after some nice, clean-looking sheep who might transfer to their church. That's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is for you and I to be on the lookout for the star leading the Magi to the Lord. So let me ask you the $10 question today. Who are the Magi? in your life? Who in your life seems really far away? Who in your life is really far away? Dare you and I picture a star above their heads, calling them each moment of each day to Jesus? Dare we include them in our vision and prayers? You say, what do you mean vision? You know what I found about Christians, and again, I'm not trying to be too hard on you guys. I mean, I, I deal with this too, is that sometimes we've journeyed so long with particular magi, it's almost impossible for us to see them coming to the Lord. Can you relate to that? There's magi in my life where I just think, oh my gosh, I, it's been so long, I just can't even imagine it. And, and, and what a terrible thing to think. 
God wants me to include them in my vision, picture them following the star to Jesus and finding him and worshiping him. Dare we include them in our vision and prayers? Uh, Dare we include them in our church? Will we be there when they finally see the star and begin to make their long haul way to Jesus? You know, our church right now is in an incredible position. We really are. Neil mentioned earlier and was mentioned at Cactus Venue and Chapel that we're starting our third campus. This is a big deal, guys. This is a huge campus that God has blessed us with, this church that is merging with us. We're hoping to send anywhere between 400 and 1,000 people from this campus and Cactus up to Northridge to join about six, 700 other adults up there. And we hope to have a thriving outreach ministry in North Scottsdale. But it's going to leave some empty seats here. And so what an opportunity for you and I, if we were ever going to seek and welcome the magi, the tax collectors, the sinners, what an opportunity we have now. I was super encouraged this week by a a, a note that I got uh, from a gal who has been one of these magi over the last uh, few years, at least a decade a very successful businesswoman in this community here and, and things started to really struggle in her life and she got really open to spiritual things and there was a gal that, that worked with her that, that really became somebody that, that helped her find her way back to Jesus. And, and her and her husband befriended them and at one point even said, hey, come to church. I mean, it won't freak you out. You're gonna be loved there and all of that. And, and in this letter she wrote me, I mean, these are her words. I'm not making any of this up. This just blew my mind. She refers to this coworker of hers who's a member of Scottsdale Bible here. She said, she was my beacon to Scottsdale Bible Church. Interesting language, beacon. And she said when she got to the church here, she immediately felt a wave of calmness and peace wash over her. I laughed at this one. She says, and the people were actually happy to be at church. (laughs) That surprised her that people would actually be smiling and coming to church. She goes on to talk about her experiences here at Scottsdale Bible or understanding of Jesus. And she says, this became my spiritual awakening. See, that does my heart good when I hear things like this. I was in Chompies this week meeting somebody for breakfast and the waitress said, hey, aren't you the pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church? I started going there a few months ago. She goes, somebody invited me there. Do you all understand we don't have an advertising budget here at our church? We really don't. You'll never hear us on the radio. We don't have newspaper ads. We don't do internet stuff. Do you know why? Because I won't use tithe money for that. Our only advertising, you ready for this, is you and us. That's it. I mean, if we don't get the word out that, that there is a Bethlehem, that might be a stretch, but you know what I mean, that there, there is a place where Jesus can be found and even take the courage to invite them. And again, we're gonna have some empty seats coming up here, so this is good. If we don't take the courage to do that, it's not gonna happen. But it all begins with you and I at least making room in our mind and heart for the Magi. Because you see, if and when they come, And if and when they see this Lord and Savior that you and I love, here is the final thing that this story of the Magi shows us. And that is, and it's really the main point, that only Jesus has the power to turn secular religion into spiritual joy. Isn't that so cool? 
I mean, again, one of the reasons that I think it's so important we see the magi for who they are, the, the secular occultists into astrology and dream interpretation and the magical arts and all that stuff. The reason that's important, gang, is because when they finally meet Jesus, I'll show you this in a second here, something happens in them. And at the very least, what happens is that confronting Jesus turns their secular religion into a true spiritual joy. Look at how it says this in verses 10 and 11, or 9 through 11. It says, after hearing the king, Herod, they, the Magi, went their way, and the star, which they had seen when they were in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. No stronger way in the Greek to say it, by the way. Four words that we interpret here with five. Exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented them with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know what's so sad about this? I don't know if you guys caught it, but but what does everybody focus on when it comes to these magi? They focus on the gifts, right? we, We need an excuse to give gifts under the Christmas tree. So we focus on this and say, you know, it's a good thing that they gave gifts, we give gifts and all this. It's not bad to focus on the gifts, but do you understand the real point of verse 11 is not that, but this, that they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. You know, many will argue, well, what does that mean? I mean, did they they come believers? Did they, you know, just worship him as they might worship back then, you know, because they were secular in nature and all this? I mean, what does it mean? It's a fascinating question to ask. (coughs) That word worship there in verse 11 actually appears three times in this story. It appears in verses 2, 8, and 11. And I would submit to you that it appears in those three venues in very different ways, even though it's the same word, even in the Greek. Uh, the middle time that it appears in verse eight is when Herod says, hey, when you find this child Jesus, tell me where he is because I want to come and worship him. So obviously, Herod doesn't really mean that, right? He's a liar. He's, he's being deceitful. He's being false. So he doesn't really mean he wants to worship him. So it doesn't mean worship in the way that you and I worship. And then in verse two, when it uses that word, it uses it to say that the Magi uh, wanted to go to see Jesus to worship him. It was a desire. I would say that that's probably not true worship either. Why? Because they were secular religionists, you know, and they they really didn't know what worship was. And so they, they just meant to kind of pay homage to Jesus and things like that. So you got two uses of it, homage and then lying. And then you get to verse, what is it? Verse 11 here. And I would submit to you, that is now being used in a third way. And that this could truly be real worship. Why do I think that? Because they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, if, if you view this only from a sociological standpoint, you might be tempted to think, well, you know, they were just excited to, to, to see this king. Yeah, but you and I know more. We know the Holy Spirit's involved in this whole thing. We know the Spirit is calling these magi to Jesus and that the Spirit is preparing their hearts. And so could it be, I don't think there's too much of a stretch, that as they got closer to Jesus, like at one point when you got closer to Jesus, and you started to sense the anticipation that maybe God is around the corner, that maybe God is in the house, that maybe I might find God, or better yet, him find me, and their hearts started to beat faster. Maybe that's what was going on in their lives. 
And then when they got there and they saw this Jesus, again, I don't have scriptural evidence for this, but it would fit what God does. They looked at him and go, whoa, we came here to, to, to see a king. I think this is something more than a king. I, I think this is this God doing something in this world and we better hit our knees and worship him. See, I think that's what was really going on there. I think these magi, I'd like to think, found joy. But in the end, here's what we do know. And that is that only Jesus can turn secular religion into spiritual joy, even for those who are really far away. So here's the deal today. If you're here today as a magi, if you're here today as my friend Jim, then my word to you today is that Jesus welcomes you here. He's super glad that you're here. Cactus Venue and Chapel, he's super glad that you're here. And I'm gonna pray with you in a minute just like I did with Jim way back in 1999 to believe and trust in him because you're finally home and we're gonna help seal that deal. If you're here today as a already convinced follower, you know my message to you, church people, come on. We need to make room in our hearts and our minds. If ever our church was ready for this, we're ready now. We need to make room for the Magi in our community to come here just like our friend did who came here by the beacon of somebody in our church and let them find Jesus as they seek among us as the believing community. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this amazing story. I'm saddened that we've added a lot of quaint folklore to it over the years and, and kind of messed it up. But hopefully today, Lord, we've set some of the records straight and seen this as it was originally intended to be seen as a rugged story, almost catching us off guard about people who showed up at the nativity scene who shouldn't have been there, but they really should, because that's the point. Father, I pray for anybody here today that resonates themselves with the Magi as somebody who has been on a spiritual journey following a star in their hearts and minds that have led them to this point, that God, they would be ready today to believe and trust in your son, Jesus. I pray that as they gaze upon him this Christmas season, that like the Magi, they might fall down and worship him. And Lord, in their heart of hearts, pray this. Thank you, God, that you have led me. Thank you that you have loved me. Thank you that you have revealed your son, Jesus, to me. Thank you that he is my sin bearer, that he came for me to bring me to you. I believe and trust in him. And God, I pray if anybody would pray that prayer today, accepting Jesus into their hearts and minds, that God, they would mark today as the day that they came home to you. God, for the rest of us, I pray this. I pray, God, for the rest of us that we would make room in our hearts, our busy lives, our schedules, our worldview for the Magi in our lives. God, eternity depends on this. And I pray, God, that we would not get to eternity in heaven disappointed or with regrets, but that, God, we would be ones who cared, who wept for lost people and, and reached out to them with love and compassion. I think of Romans 2, 4, where it says your kindness leads us to repentance. And I pray, God, we would be men and women filled with kindness, filled with truth, filled with grace, and lead, enter into people's lives and lead them, Lord, to the star before them, to the Jesus that their hearts long for. May we be that as a church, God. May you use us that way. We're ready and we love you. Thanks for Christmas. Thanks for the true meaning of Christmas. And I pray this in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. amen.